Is this on? Good. I wanted to shake things up just a little bit. I wanted to just have Robbie touch me and then take my cane and throw it away and go, I'm healed, and then start to dance. But <laughs> I never have been able to dance, so I just didn't figure that was a workable plan. All right, well, before we begin, let me give you just a personal testimony. You know, Job, was, uh, Job asked, shall we accept good from the Lord and not evil also? And the answer to that question is, of course, no. I've been living in uh, Philippians where Paul says, I don't know what to choose. You know, I have the opportunity, if they give me a diagnosis of ALS within a couple of years possibly, to be face-to-face with the one who has been the object of my affections my entire life. On the other hand, I think of my wife, I think of my children, I think of my grandchildren, I think of my church, I think of the books that I want to write, and I think it's more necessary for me to say for it to stay. So as I go to the doctor's appointment on Friday, I'm in a win-win situation. You can't give me any bad news. So I appreciate your prayers, but you know, if you're afraid of death as a believer, you're living beneath your privileges. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's begin with just a little bit of family advice. This is how you know you're not mom's favorite. All right, well, I am the pastor of Washington County Bible Church in Brenham, Texas, which is a very little church in a little town. In our church, the average age is deceased. (laughs) And our topic today is ancient future faith and the spiritual formation movement. Now, many of you probably have not heard of this. This is Somewhat, this is one of those topics that's somewhat esoteric and yet is everywhere. It's like one of the, you know, nobody drives a purple Volvo until you buy one, right? And then they're everywhere on the road. You know that phenomenon, right? When you start looking for this, it is everywhere. It is one of the big movements in the Christian church today. So let's talk about this. Well, why should we talk about this? America may possess the world's largest infrastructure for nurturing human spirituality complete with hundreds of thousands of houses of worship, thousands of parachurch organizations and schools, and seemingly unlimited products, resources, and experts, and we might add so-called experts. Yet a new study from the Barna Group identifies an underlying reason why there's little progress in helping people develop spiritually. Many churchgoers and many clergy struggle to articulate a basic understanding of what spiritual maturity really is. People aspire to be spiritually mature, but they don't know what it means. Pastors want to guide other people on the path of spiritual wholeness, but they don't know how to clearly outline their goals or the outcomes of that process. Barna outlines five challenges facing the church in this area, but let me talk about just two of them. First is that most Christians equate spiritual maturity with following the rules. Most Christians equate spiritual maturity with following the rules. One of the widely embraced notions about spiritual health is that it means trying hard to follow the rules described in the Bible. 81% of self-identified Christians endorsed this statement. And a majority strongly agreed with this statement. Even among individuals defined by their belief that salvation is not earned through good works, four out of five born-again Christians concur that spiritual maturity is trying hard to follow the rules. And we're going to show that's wrong, but that's what people believe. Second, most churchgoers are not clear what their church expects in terms of spiritual maturity. In the survey, there was an open-ended question which asked churchgoers to describe how their church defined, quote, a healthy, spiritually mature follower of Jesus. Half of churchgoers simply said they were not sure and they were unable to venture even a guess regarding their church's definition. Even among boarding and Christians, and that's a subset of professed believers who have made a profession of faith in Christ and confessed their sinful nature, Two out of five were not able to identify how their church defines spiritual maturity. Among those who gave a substantive response, the most common responses were having a relationship with Jesus, 16%, 
practicing spiritual disciplines like prayer and Bible study, 9%. Living according to the Bible, 8%. Being obedient, 8%. Being involved in church, 7%. And having concern for others, 6%. And may I add that all of those are wrong. Well, I understand at least part of the confusion for this. The reason I wrote my book is because I wanted to help my congregation grow spiritually mature. And in my very humble yet correct opinion, the um, <laughs> thank you for laughing at that. I had a church member get mad at me one time because I said that. And that's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard. The, the best book on spiritual maturity is Lewis Berry Chafer's He That Is Spiritual. The problem is it was written in 1918 and it reads like it was written in 1918. The language has changed since then. Not only that, but people had a basic understanding and knowledge of the Bible in 1918 that they do not possess in 2015. Plus, it doesn't help us any that the publisher published it in very tiny print and the page is very gray. And, you know, so I would hand this to my congregants and they would, their eyes would glaze over and pat me on the head and think, poor man, he means well. <laughs> so I decided to go to the bookstore to see what else was available. So I went to the first bookstore. Uh, and I asked for a book on spiritual maturity. Well, no, actually I asked for the section on spiritual maturity because I was naive. Uh, hopelessly naive as it turns out. Well, we don't have one of those sections, but they're kind of in the Christian living section in the back of the store. So I go to this wall where they didn't know where to put everything else and I started rummaging through and it's not, and it was by author, not by topic. And after about an hour and a half of meticulously going over the shelf, um, there was nothing there. So I went to another Christian bookstore. And I walked in, and there was a perky young lass of about eight behind the counter. <laughs> and I said, I would like to talk to someone who really knows the library here so that I could... Uh, that I could uh, find a book. And she goes, well, I can help you. And I said, really, though, I want somebody familiar with the contents of the story. No, really, I can help you. Okay. I would like a book to teach me how to become spiritually mature. And she went, her face darkened. She got her computer, click, 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 No. No. Oh, here's one. It's called... Oh. And I said, is there a problem? And she said, well, we have one called Be Mature, but it's in our commentary section. And I said, okay. And that's a problem because, well, she said, we're the most condescending smile. That means you'd actually be dealing with the Bible. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I can't make this up. So I go to another bookstore. And I asked to speak to the manager and I say, can I, can you help me find a book on spiritual maturity? And it's like he'd never heard this term before. I said, you know, growing in Christ, being mature, mature believer, spiritually mature. And I'm trying to throw out all these synonyms that I can think of to try and help him. And he went, oh, you mean spiritual formation. And I said, whatever. He takes me to the front of the store, highly um, placarded with various things, and I began to look. And at this time, I felt, well, let me read you just a little bit from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. <laughs> what is it you want to buy? The sheep said at last, looking up for a moment from her knitting. I don't quite know yet, Alice said very gently. I should like to look all round me first, if I might. You may look in front of you and on both sides if you like, said the sheep, but you can't look all round you unless you've got eyes in the back of your head. But these, as it happened, Alice had not got. So she contented herself with turning around and looking at the shelves as she came to them. The shop seemed full of all manner of curious things, but the oddest part of it all was that whenever she looked hard at any shelf to make out exactly what it had on it, that particular shelf was always quite empty though the others around it were crowded as full as they could hold. Well, that was my experience at this third bookshop. 
It was filled with books, but the books that were empty. First book I came to was this one, Praying with Beads, Daily Prayers for the Christian Year. Then The Rhythm of God's Grace, Morning and Evening Hours of Prayer. Then Foundations of Spiritual Formation, a Community Approach to Becoming Like Christ. Then there was Sacred Rhythms, Arranging Our Lives for Spiritual Transformation. Then Sacred Pathways, and they talked about the nine sacred pathways. Here it is, according to this book. The Naturalists, Loving God Out of Doors. Sensates, Loving God Through the Senses. Traditionalists, Loving God Through Ritual and Symbol. Ascetics, Loving God in Solitude and Simplicity. Activists, Loving God Through Confrontation. That seems to be the majority of the church, doesn't it? I digress. Caregivers loving God by loving others. Enthusiasts loving God with mystery and celebration. Contemplatives loving God through adoration. And intellectuals loving God with the mind. Hmm. Then I looked at the next book. Wilderness Time, A Guide for Spiritual Retreat. And they talked about the disciplined retreat. Retreating inwardly, disciplines. And by the way, key in on the word discipline because it's going to be important. Disciplines of meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. Retreating outwardly, disciplines of simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. Retreating corporately, disciplines of confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. Quote, spiritual formation involves a fundamental choice. Choosing to live for Jesus Christ may mean adopting a certain style of life or perhaps more properly, a rule of life. We take on a series of spiritual practices that will open us up to God's work in our lives. Then I came to this, the Spiritual Formation Bible. And as I opened it up, lo and behold, there was the Apocrypha. That's the um, series of intertestamental books that are accepted by Roman Catholics and rejected by uh, Protestants. The additions to Esther, 1st and 2nd Ezra, Judas, 1st and 3rd Maccabees, Psalm 151, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, the Letter of Jeremiah, the Prayer of Manasseh, Tobit, and then additions to Daniel, including Bell and the Dragon and a few others. And I began to turn around and look and see, did did I wander into a Roman Catholic bookstore here? What has happened? And then I came to this book. Return to Rome, why the president of the Evangelical Theological Society left his post and returned to the Catholic Church. And they were talking about, of course, Dr. Francis Beckworth, who resigned as president of the Evangelical Theological Society in May of 2007 and entered his submission to Rome. So what's happening in evangelicalism that has caused this return to Roman Catholicism and how has it affected our views of spiritual maturity? Well, to answer that question, we have to talk about this guy, Robert Weber, died in 2007, He was raised in fundamentalism. He taught at Wheaton College. His father was a pastor and deeply involved in the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 20s and 30s. His father-in-law, interesting, was Harold Linzel, the author of The Battle for the Bible, published in 1978. You'll remember that was a book crying uh, and defending the inerrancy of the scripture particularly in seminaries, using Fuller Seminary as an example. He graduated from Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Lutheran seminaries, and his church association since the early 70s was an evangelically oriented Episcopal church. He played a key role in the convergence movement. That's a move among evangelical and charismatic churches in the United States to blend charismatic worship with liturgies from the Book of Common Prayer and other liturgical sources, He's also the founder of the Robert E. Weber Center for the Ancient Evangelical Future. He wrote this book, Ancient Future Faith, and that's the name that's been given to this movement, Rethinking Evangelicalism for a Postmodern World. Rethinking Evangelicalism for a Postmodern World. And in it, he says that we should adopt this Latin phrase, quod ubique, 
Kod Ab Omnibus, which means what was believed everywhere, always, and by everyone. The church is too fragmented, he says. The church has been arguing about too many things, so we need to get back to those things that the church has always agreed on. And that way we can come together and have the unity in Christ that God intended us to have. So we need to get back to what was believed everywhere, always, and by everyone. The second big book in this movement is called this, the, by Richard J. Foster, The Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth, it says. It is voted by readers um, of Christianity Today as the third most influential book after the Bible. That means if you haven't heard of it, you're out of touch. This movement exploded in a 21th, four-month period between 1977 and 1978, but it's recently taken on new legs, as we'll see. One of the 10 best books of the 20th century, says Christianity Today. So let's look at the growth of the ancient future faith movement. Richard Foster's celebration of discipline, the path to spiritual growth, really got the ball rolling. Robert Weber's Common Roots, A Call to Evangelical Maturity, is another big book in this in this system. Here's some important names, some of which you may recognize, many of which you probably won't. There was Bethel College and seminary president Carl Lundquist. He and his wife Nancy visited over 40 spiritual retreat centers around the world. They established their own retreat center, the Evangelical Order of the Burning Heart. Then there's Peter Gilquist. He was a campus crusade director in the 60s who moved from Protestantism to Eastern Orthodoxy. He was the author of Becoming Orthodox, A Journey to the Ancient Christian Faith. Tom Oden, did I get him here? There we go. Tom Oden is a United Methodist and was Henry Anson Butts Professor of Theology and Ethics at Drew University in New Jersey from 1980 until his retirement in 2004. He's the general editor of the Ancient Christian Commentary on the Scripture series, described as a multi-volume patristic commentary on scriptures by the father of the church, spanning the era from Clement of Rome, which is, they say, 95, more like 100, 105, to John of Damascus around 750. By the way, that is an excellent commentary series. These people, you know, like, like most things, they're not all wrong. It is very, very, the ancient Christian commentary series just basically pulls from the patristics and say, you know, and you have a, say, for instance, on Romans, you have a passage and you look up the passage and then you see, did any of the ancient fathers talk about it? Very, very interesting reading and lots of insights. By the way, if you want to do some work on Matthew and you want to do a little bit of uh, reading, read John Chrysostom's sermons on Matthew. They're excellent reading, excellent reading. I don't agree with everything he has to say. By the way, John Chrysostom, Chrysostom was a nickname, Golden Mouth, because of his preaching. I'm hoping when I die, they, I move up from tin to aluminum. Okay, that's... <laughs> anyway, Tom Oden is the one who coined the term paleo-orthodoxy, which is a synonym for ancient future faith. He's written the term paleo-orthodoxy is employed to make clear that we're not talking about neo-orthodoxy or new orthodoxy. Paleo or ancient be, uh, becomes a necessary prefix only because the term orthodoxy has been preempted and to some degree tarnished by the modern tradition of neo-orthodoxy. Odin says his mission is, quote, to begin to prepare the postmodern church Christian community for its third millennium by returning again to the careful study and respectful following of the central tradition of classical Christianity. Now notice he isn't interested in returning to biblical authority. He's interested in returning to the central tradition of the church, and there is a difference, isn't there? Then there's Donald Bloch, who died in 2008. He was a noted scholar from the United Church of Christ in 1957 until his retirement in 1992. He was professor of theology at University of Dubuque Theological Study Seminaries in Dubuque, where he continued as professor emeritus. He characterized himself as a progressive evangelical or ecumenical orthodox, criticizing the excesses of both the theological left and the right. He often decried the abandonment of traditional values among the left, but also the ugly reactionary habits of some conservatives. Thomas Howard, interestingly, was raised in a prominent evangelical home his sister is, just died today, or yesterday. 
His sister is well-known author and former missionary Elizabeth Elliot. He became Episcopalian in his mid-twenties, then entered the Catholic Church in 1985 at the age of 50. He was an English professor at Gordon College and then at St. John's Seminary. He's considered an expert on the writings of C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, was also an English professor. Now, I hope you noticed as we began to work through this that a good majority of these people come from fundamentalist backgrounds. In other words, they're coming from churches like this one and churches like yours. So how did this happen? Why this flight from fundamentalism to something entirely different? Well, of course, these things don't take place in a vacuum. And so let me give you at least what I believe is part of the cause. And it began with this man, Bill Bright. He became a believer at the First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood in 1944. He had an undergraduate degree in economics. He became a believer and started intense study of the Bible, graduate studies at Princeton and Fuller, but interestingly never completed either. And there is a problem. In 1951, he founded Campus Crusade for Christ, and then in 1952, he published one of the best-known tracts, probably the best-known tracts in the English language, The Four Spiritual Laws. Now, The Four Spiritual Laws has got a significant problem. And I blame a lot of this on the four spiritual laws and the trajectory that it began to take Christianity. Law one says this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And there's so many problems with that statement, it's hard to know where to begin. First of all, that statement is very Occidental. Occidental is the opposite of Oriental. It's very Western. If you go to China or you go to Sudan or you go to Iraq or Iran, if you go to Nigeria, then God's wonderful plan for your life when you become a Christian probably means imprisonment and torture and then death. It's only in the United States and other democracies where we can say, hey, becoming a Christian will make things so much better for you. Okay. Second problem with this is that it has changed the focus of Christianity from what it has always been to something new. Christianity has always been about eternity. It's always been about a guilty sinner standing before God who needs their sins forgiven so that their eternity will be a blessed one and not a one of condemnation. Christianity has always been about not loving the world or the things in the world, but setting your mind in, on the heavenly things, setting your mind on Christ, abandoning this world, at least in part, so that your affections are set out into eternity. This changed all that because now the focus of Christianity, according to Law 1, is the wonderful plan God has for your life. And the vast, vast majority of people that read that, they found that to mean their life right here, right now. I knew that was going to happen. I should have just thrown it on the floor and started dancing in the first place. <laughs> Law two isn't a whole lot better. Man is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he can't know and experience God's love and plan for his life. Notice law one is very personal. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But then when you get into law two, then it's all changed. But man, not you, man is sinful and separated from God. And it's because of man's sin that you can't have the good life God wants you to have. Do you see? Do you see the problem? It takes Christianity and makes the center of Christianity your life right here, right now. Law three, just to complete, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. Law four, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. We receive Christ by personal invitation. And then he quotes Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. By the way, that's a misuse of that verse. Jesus is knocking on the door of the church, not inviting the unbeliever in that passage, but maybe I quibble there. I'll let that go. Now, because... Christianity has been brought to be about the here and the now. There's been a great change wrought in Christianity. When I was growing up, um, the late 60s and 70s, when we had conferences at our churches, more likely than they were not, they were conferences on prophecy about the future. Now we have conferences, and what are they about? It's about managing your money. It's about marriage. It's about being a better leader. I went to the 
a local H-E-B, and I was standing in line, and now idle mind is a terrible thing, so I went over to the book rack where they have all the religious stuff, and I did, did a twirl, and I looked at all the books, and there wasn't one that dealt with the, prophecy, the, the subject of eternity. It was all about how you live right here, right now. Now, that has worked its way into Christianity. It has consequences. And that brought about, eventually, what I consider the natural consequence, and that's the church growth movement. We see it in uh, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church. He says in this book, the most important decision you'll make concerning the growth of your church is what kind of music you have. Why? Because you're dealing with what people want. There's also in this movement, of course, the Willow Creek Community Church, and their um, uh, seeker-sensitive model. The seeker-sensitive model is where you go and you meet people's felt needs. Why? Because it's about right now. Marketing the Church by George Barna, what they never told you about church growth. He writes, ministry in in essence has the same objective as marketing, to meet people's needs. Christian ministry, by definition, meets people's real needs by providing them with biblical solutions to their life circumstances. Where's the emphasis? Right now. Inside the mind of unchurched Terry and Mary, how to reach friends and family who avoid church, who avoid God in the church. The most effective message for seekers are those that address their felt needs. According to this book, according to Lee Strobel's marketing research, Harry is not interested in truth. Therefore, he does not react well to thus saith the Lord. And Harry is not interested in the future, including heaven. Therefore, reaching him through concern for his eternal destiny is futile. What Harry is interested in is feeling better about himself. He is asking, what can help me deal with my pain? He is interested in his marriage, his friendships, his career, his recovery from past pain, and so on. Unchurched Mary, for her part, according to Strobel, is attracted to churches where women have access to leadership and influence. If we're to reach this generation, we must then market the gospel as something that works, that is, something that relieves pain and provides happiness. And that is the common model in churches today. Now, this catering to felt needs is not only unbiblical, but it has the result of leaving this huge hole in the heart. And of course, this is nothing new. Charles Barth in Germany after World War I completely bought into the ideas of um, higher criticism. But when he actually was trying to deal with his congregants, he realized that, that higher criticism provided no answers that would meet the needs of his congregation. And so he turned to what has since been called neo-orthodoxy, where he didn't necessarily believe all these claims in the Bible, but he acted as if they were true because these provided the answers that his congregation needed. This has left, this idea of this purpose-driven modernistic approach to Christianity has left a huge hole in the heart of people. And of course, there arose a backlash against this modern approach, a postmodern approach called the emergent church. The emergent church said we need to get rid of the computer-generated models, we need to get rid of all the market research, and we need to just let people do their own thing, evidently. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot to it, except that those guys are wrong. Now, the reason I bring this up is because there, we've gone through this review of contemporary Christianity culture is because the emergent church has become has been experiencing a massive change within it that is in line with our topic. Brian McLaren is the most recognizable name in the emergent church movement, and he singles this book that he wrote, Finding Our Way Again, The Return to the Ancient Practices, signals a shift or at least a new emphasis within emergent churches toward ancient practices of earlier periods of church history. What seems to have precipitated this renewed interest in ancient practices and mysticism is the recognition that the emergent church movement is in need of roots. Now, as usual, McLaren believes the church has lost its way because of refusing to follow God's leading. The church has become proud and unteachable, but fortunately there's a few, quote, humble and teachable people, can't imagine who he's talking about, who are pointing out the right path. 
Quote, when the community of faith realizes it's lost its way, it begins looking forward by looking back. It looks back to its ancient practices to help it reset its future course. Now, I agree with McLaren. The church has lost its way, but he's looking back to the wrong source. He should be looking back to the word of God, doing careful exegesis, but instead he's looking back to the traditions of the church. This means that the church, in order to find its way again, must look to and adopt the early church fathers, not the New Testament church as recorded in Scripture, to adopt the early church traditions and rituals, especially the seven ancient practices of fasting, pilgrimage, common daily prayers, a weekly day of rest, annual holy days and seasons, tithing and sacred meal, as they find fulfillment in the threefold way, remember this now, the threefold way of purgation, illumination, and union with God. We'll see that again in a moment. Now, according to Weber, he says it may be broadly said that the story of Christianity moves from a focus on mystery in the classical period to institution in the medieval period to individualism in the Reformation to reason in the modern era and now in the postmodern era back to mystery. And this is the way he designs it. The primitive church is the New Testament church, the first century. The ancient or classical is from 100 to 600. 600, by the way, is when you had Pope Leo I, first pope. Okay. Medieval, 600 to 1500. Reformation, 15 to 1750. Modern, 1750 to 1980. And postmodern to 1980 and the present. And, and Weber would argue that the zenith of the church was the ancient or classical period, 100 to 600. Not the New Testament church but the ancient or classical church. It's vital to note that the starting point for ancient future faith is not the apostolic era of the first century, nor of the New Testament documents. It's the classical stage. It's their contention that it was during this era that Christianity reached its zenith. For Christianity to regain its spiritual health, in essence, it has to return to the practices of the classical stage. And so they begin to talk about the three ecumenical creeds a great deal. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the symbol of Chalcedon. Now, I was in the Lutheran Church for about 11 and a half years uh, with a very confused theological mind where I had a bunch of mutually incompatible thoughts bouncing around my head at any given moment. And I always learned that the three ecumenical creeds were the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. They have conveniently changed that to the symbol of Chalcedon. The symbol of Chalcedon is rejected by many Protestants because it uses the term Theotokos in it, where they describe Mary as the mother of God. Now, really, we shouldn't get all bent out of shape about this because when they wrote it, what they meant was that Jesus was God and Mary was his mother. When Nestorius suggested that that might not be the best and we ought to change it to Christotokos, that she was the mother of the Christ, then he was roundly denounced as trying to deny the deity of Christ and was labeled a heretic, and he got, kind of got a bum deal on that as far as I'm concerned. But at any rate, they've changed this to the symbol of Chalcedon. Now, these three creeds have been more or less accepted by the church at large. They deal with issues such as the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the two, natures of, uh, the two natures of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, and so forth. In other words, they talk a great deal about who God is and about who Christ is. What they don't talk about is the nature of salvation. They agree that salvation comes from the cross, but there's no universal uh, creed that talks about how one actually becomes a Christian. That's the, what's missing from these creeds. Although the entire church is united in its belief that all are sinners and that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection procures salvation, there exists a number of explanations about, how our, about our sinful nature and the means of receiving the benefits of Christ's death. And that means of receiving Christ's death is not mentioned in these creeds. That's why Brian McLaren says, I don't think we've got the gospel right yet. What's it mean to be saved? None of us have arrived at orthodoxy. Now, the emphasis upon mystery in his writings is important because it's sort of a code word for Roman Catholic mysticism. And you can tell just by looking at the words, mystery and mysticism are related. So it would be good to look at what we talk about when we talk about Roman Catholic mysticism. 
Mysticism is the search for unio mystica. By the way, you're going to hear a lot, not a lot of Latin phrases from here on out because Latin is cool and more spiritual than English, okay? <laughs> Mysticism is the search for unio mystica that is a personal union with God. The mystic believes that in, there is an, that, uh, in these an absolute, that he or she can enjoy an unmediated link to this absolute who is God in a super rational experience. Now, I think that, I mean, I'm all for a union with God because we already have it. 1 John 4.13, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Somebody say amen. amen. 1 Corinthians 6.17, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. This is just the old uh, selling you what you already have that occurred in the garden. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God and yet Satan comes along and says, if you eat this, you'll be like God. They were already like God. We already have union with God. Well, they feel that this is something that only the enlightened can get. And there's a threefold stage to get this. There is purgation. Purgation is the cleansing stage which begins with self-examination and penance and leads to a holy life. The 16th century monk, St. John of the Cross, called this the dark night of the soul. When one feels abandoned by God, the soul is purified through this suffering. Only when the soul is pure is it ready to experience a rapturous union with God. Purgation involves detachment from the things of this world, including material and physical desires, mortification of the body, and the building of new paths to replace the ones torn down. Illumination starts when in the dark night of the soul, one begins to experience inner voices and visions. Now again, that's not totally wrong, is it? Romans 8.16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the God's children. So we do hear words from God. His spirit testifies with our spirit. Or Ephesians 1.17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. So again, they want to have this message from God, but if you're born again, we already have that. Well, the goal of illumination is to know genuine spiritual truth, but according to this model, truth can't be found via conventional means. The deep things of God can't be known through rational means, but only through illumination. Again, John of the Cross. Nothing created or imagined can serve the intellect as a proper means for union with God. And all that can be grasped by the intellect will serve as an obstacle rather than a means if a person were become attached to it. In other words, you shelve your mind and you run on a vacuum and see what happens. Illumination is achieved through fasting, long seasons of specialized prayers known as contemplative prayers, and following various spiritual disciplines of the monastics, especially the founder of the Jesuits, Ignatius Loyola. Um, that's his Facebook picture, by the way. And then finally, when you finish that, then there is union with God. Okay, so how do we get to unio mystica? Well, there's four ways. Lectio divina the Divine Office, Ignatius' Ignatius's Spiritual Exercises, and Liturgical Practices. So let's look at each in turn. This is Mark Iaconelli. If you do anything in uh, youth ministry and you actually go outside and purchase something, this guy's fingerprints are going to be all over it, I guarantee you. He is unavoidable. He has formed contemplative youth ministry. And he talks about Lectio Divinia, which is a way of reading the Bible, quote, when we engage in Lectio Divina, we're not seeking to read the Bible for knowledge or instruction, although both of those may come, nor are we seeking the escape of a good story. Instead, we come to the words of the Bible seeking to be with God. So first there is reading. Since Lectio Divina engages the whole person, your bodily posture is important. A seated position that is erect but not tensed or slouched is best. Remember that unlike ordinary reading, in Lectio you are seeking to be shaped by the word more than informed by the word. Notice the intellect gets in the way, you get rid of the intellect. 
Then there is meditation. Meditation is a spiritual work of holy desire and an interior invitation for the spirit to pray and speak within us. Meditation will do you little good if you try to control the outcome. He adds that incorporating the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola is recommended for meditation. There is prayer or aratio. Aratio is a time for participation in the interpenetrating subjectivity of the Trinity through prolonged mutual presence and following and growing identification with the life of Christ. And finally, there is contemplation. A theological grace that cannot be reduced to logical, psychological, or aesthetic categories. It's best for us to stop talking and listen to him in simple, loving attentiveness. In this strange and holy land, we must remove the sandals watch of our ideas, constructs, and inclinations, and quietly listen to the voice of God. In other words, forget what you learned in Sunday school. Forget what they told you in uh, in Awana. You need to get rid of that and you need to just shelve your mind and listen. Here's what he talks about. Take a word or phrase and repeat it to yourself, allowing the rest of the text to fall away. As you prayerfully repeat it, different thoughts, feelings, and images may arrive. This is the way we can pray ourselves empty and sink into God beneath all your thoughts and feelings. Again, The super rational experience is what is meant. The intellect gets in the way. Now, please notice this is a completely non-cognitive approach to fellowship of God because that's what we're really talking about here. The Bible here is used more as an Eastern mantra than of communication. You just take the same phrase and you repeat it over and over and over again until your mind becomes numb. In Lectio Divina, the reader does not approach Scripture in order to grasp understanding of what God has communicated and to apply it. Instead, it's a super-rational experience in which God speaks to an individual beyond the written page in imaginative and non-cognitive ways. It's also instructive to note that this method of Bible reading is not drawn from the Scriptures itself, but from medieval monks during a period of time when the Church of Rome was abandoning the clear word of God and seeking alternatives. The ancient future faith movement is not going back to Scripture for its teaching, but to the practices and traditions of men. Well, then there is the divine office. That's where we divide um, the hours of the day in matins, prime, terse, sex, nun, vespers, and compline. This rule was written by Benedict, for a 6th century monk who entered his monastery with the goal of hearing for God. The first first rule of Benedict's uh, rule was listen. So Benedict structured each day around two activities that were designed to listen to the voice of God. There was Lectio Divina, four hours, and the Divine Office, four hours. Again, that's Benedict's Facebook picture. Okay. The spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola a month-long program of meditations, prayers, considerations, and contemplative practices that help Catholic faith become more fully alive in the everyday life of contemporary people. It sets out in a brief manual or handbook, sparse, taciturn, and practical. It presents a formulation of Ignatius's spirituality in a series of prayer exercises, thought experiments, and examinations of consciousness designed to help a retreatant usually with the aid of a spiritual director, to experience a deeper conversion into life with God in Christ, to allow our personal stories to be interpreted as by being subsumed into the story of God. Now notice what we brought in is the human element. Let You need to have somebody help you get union with God by taking all these non-cognitive things to make sense out of them. In other words, that there's not, no longer one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now there's somebody else in there. Usually, retreatants will meet regularly in private with a spiritual director to discuss their experiences of prayer and reflection and to receive guidance in praying with the exercises and thinking about what they're doing and in the interpretation of what's happening to them. And so we see things, although not found in Scripture, practices like the rosary, prayer ropes, stations of the cross, icons, incense, making the sign of the cross, use of crucifixes, labyrinths, benedict chants, and, and so forth are used. Here's a prayer labyrinth. That's one of the exercises. That's not a maze. 
A maze is a tour puzzle in the form of complex branching passages with a choice of path and direction. A labyrinth is a single path that has only one path to the center. There's no choices to be made. You just follow it. A labyrinth has an unambiguous through route to the center and back and is not designed to be difficult to navigate. As with other pagan cultural practices, the prayer labyrinth was adopted by the church across Europe during medieval times, often being used as a means to meditate, pray, and connect with God in a higher spiritual way. Numerous cathedrals in Europe have prayer labyrinths embedded into their floors. The widest accepted prayer labyrinth in the church is the, was the 11th Circuit Labyrinth, which is more symbolic of Christ's cross with its four quadrants and grace being symbolized by the never-ending path through the center and back, allowing the pilgrim to walk the path at his own pace, stop for prayer and meditation as needed. And the goal here is you start and you begin to wind your way through and by the time you're at the center, you have reached the dark night of the soul. And then when you begin to walk your way back out, you begin to get the illumination that you need and so that when you end, you are closer to the unio miskatika that you seek. Like any pilgrimage, the prayer labyrinth presents an inner pilgrim, uh, represents the inner pilgrimage we're called to make to take us to the center of our being. In some Christian circles today, the labyrinth continues to be used as an instrument to facilitate meditation, prayer, personal reflection, etc., So when you walk the labyrinth, the believer meanders through each of the four quadrants several times before reaching the goal. An expectation is created as to when the center will be reached. At the center is a rosette design which has rich symbolic value, including that of enlightenment. So in case you think this is just in Roman Catholic circles, here's a prayer labyrinth in the Matthews United Methodist Church in Greenville, South Carolina. This is a prayer labyrinth in Westward Presbyterian Church in Ridgewood, New Jersey. The Spiritual Growth Committee, which sponsors the labyrinth on the website, says hopes to build a permanent outdoor labyrinth in the future. According to Christianity Today, in short, the search for historic roots can and should lead not to conversion, but to a deepening ecumenical conversation and a recognition by evangelicals that Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are fellow Christians with much to teach us. In other words, if you're witnessing to your Roman Catholic neighbor about how the works of the church will not get you right with God, how there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, how it is your own personal faith, not your baptism as an infant, that causes regeneration, then you have missed the point. According to Christianity Today, we need to be learning from them. Now look, as a Lutheran, I took a lot of things away from the Lutheran church that uh, I consider very valuable. Just for full disclosure, I do find some liturgical practices meaningful. But that's like saying, you know, I find electricity valuable. I mean, if, if I, you know, stick a fork into the electrical outlet, I might not find it as valuable as if I used it the proper way. I find, for instance, on Good Friday to have a tenebrae service where every word of the service is just reading from the Word of God and the extinguishing of candles until it gets darker and darker and darker. I find it very emotionally moving. So I'm not discarding liturgical practices, just wholesale, a whole hog. That's not my intent. My intent is to show how much bad information is out there about how to grow as a Christian. That's why I wrote this book. Because I couldn't find anything that told believers from a biblical viewpoint in a way that was easy to understand how to become spiritually mature, what spiritual maturity is, and how you get there. Well, A.W. Tozer, unfortunately, was right in his preface to his book, The Pursuit of God. He said this, I trust I speak in charity, but the lack in our pulpits is real. Milton's terrible sentence applies to our day as accurately as it did to his. The hungry sheep look up and are not fed. It's a solemn thing and no small scandal in the kingdom to see God's children starving while actually seated at the Father's table. 
Well, if not Unio Mystica, then what? And that's what we're going to answer in my next two sessions tomorrow. If this isn't correct, then what is correct? I don't want you to just, I just don't want to tell you, well, that's wrong. Don't believe what you get at your Christian bookstore. Be warmed and filled. Good night. <laughs> that's not the way we do things. So I hope you make it to the next two sessions. If you want to know what it means to be spiritual, by the way, here's a little hint. Being a Christian is being rightly related to Christ. Being spiritual is being rightly related to the Spirit. And we're going to talk about how that happens. And at this time, I'll engage any questions that you may have. And I finished right on time. Oh, I'm so good. Thank you. No, please remain seated. For those of you who were here last year, I got down to about the last 10 minutes and I'm reading about as fast as any guy can possibly read and I still didn't get halfway through. So that's why I'm so impressed with myself this year. Yes, I'm very impressed with myself this year. Okay. Okay, question. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I have a question about... I. I find what you're saying very, uh, very interesting. Um, I happen to have spent some time, and I'm sure you have too, reading G.K. Chesterton, mm-hmm. who was an apologist for the Roman Catholic Church. And as far as I'm concerned, he made some very, very real points about the fact that the Roman Catholic Church grew out of the primitive church. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, well, if you reformationists, having started your movement at a point where things were already corrupt and based on things that are not from the primitive church, how do you feel that you're going to be able to keep your path pure and clean? Well, obviously we haven't. Yes, right, right. And so I'm just I'm just wondering if you if you find anything valuable in what Chesterton was saying about um, about defending the Catholic Church, and, and, and uh, it changed my whole perspective of the Catholic Church. Well, I, I find Chesterton very valuable reading. I love reading Chesterton. I love reading uh, his book Heterodoxy and his book Orthodoxy. What is the other one I read about? Um, oh, shucks, where he gives... The Everlasting Man. The Everlasting Man, thank you. Yes, read that. Those are all exceptional books. And he's right, we owe a great debt to the Roman Catholic Church. I agree with 90% of what the Roman Catholic Church has to say. I mean, let's just be honest with one another. They believe in the deity of Christ, so do I. They believe in the virgin birth, so do I. They believe that Christ rose from the dead on the cross. They believe that he's coming again. They believe that the Bible is inerrant. Now they believe things in addition to that, but they claim at least to believe in that. They believe in angels. They believe in miracles. They believe in in all manner of things that I believe in. It's those areas where they go beyond the Bible that I have a problem. And so like anything, you know, reading a book is like eating chicken. You eat the meat, you throw away the bones. Every, that's true, isn't it? Every book I've ever read, you've got to eat the meat, you've got to throw away the bones, all right? Including this one. I read it through and the other day and I went, oh my gosh, got to change that in the second edition, okay? So, so I'm not giving a whole hog uh, denial of everything that Roman Catholicism believes, what I'm focusing on in this particular case is their view in the majority of the Roman Catholic Church, particularly Roman Catholic mysticism, of how one becomes spiritually mature. They're all fouled up there, just completely fouled up. Now, when they want to talk about um, natural law, I track really well with Roman Catholics. When they want to talk about um, a few other things, particularly in philosophy and uh, things like that, I track really well with them. In fact, uh, there was a magazine I took for years and years called uh, First Things, where it was a magazine of Christianity and culture. Found it very, very fascinating reading. Didn't always agree with everything that I read, but certainly it was provocative reading, and I recommend it for people that can sift through those things. So I'm not just giving a wholesale, you know, let's all hate Catholics kind of thing. That's not what I'm saying. 
What I am saying is that in this particular area, it has invaded evangelicalism, and it is terribly, terribly wrong. That's what I'm saying. Okay, any other questions? Did I answer your question, sir? Yes. Okay. I know what you're thinking. If you don't ask any questions, you get to the cookies quicker. Yeah, I have a question about the um, like the early church fathers between the time of 100 and 600. Do you think there was some philosophical influence that would cause uh, the people to go back to that uh, belief that spirituality is something found inside? Sort of like the influence of Plato and his philosophy on some of the... Oh, yeah, Platonic dualism had a big influence at that time uh, because, you know, Plato was huge even in... Uh, even in Jewish circles with Philo, trying to bring about uh, Platonism with uh, Jewish, um, Jewish theology. Uh, so that certainly had a huge influence in the church as well. Um, but I think also that there was a general lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge of the New Testament documents. And there was also a certain amount of jealousy, I think. Because here you have in the New Testament, you have these miracles that are happening. How many of you have ever seen anybody raised from the dead? Yeah, me neither. Okay, well, that's, that's tough. Let's go a little easier than that. How many of you ever seen anybody cured of leprosy? How many of you spoke in a language that you did not previously know? Okay. So you see what I'm saying? Now, all these things are happening, and then at 70 AD, according to the church fathers, they stopped. Do you know when the modern tongues movement, I say modern, but the idea of tongues being an unintelligible language, not a language that actually known someplace? Do you know when that started? 200 A.D. Okay, started in 200 A.D. because he used to have, he used to have all these miracles, and now with the destruction of Jerusalem, these signs and wonders. I'm getting well off the topic a little bit, but the signs and wonders of the Bible, particularly tongues. Tongues are a sign not to believers but to unbelievers, and he quotes out of Isaiah. They were a sign to Jews. Um, that destruction was coming. That was what tongues was. And then when when tongue, what tongues were? Yeah. <laughs> I've got an illness. That's my excuse. <laughs> they, so, so when, so when, um, uh, uh, when tongues stopped at 70 AD, now all of a sudden all these things that happened before that are really, really cool didn't happen anymore. And so now there was a searching after it. And there was also a search to try and be better and different. That's the thing. You know, why did the Desert Fathers start up? Because they wanted to get away from society. Besides, it didn't help any, it, it didn't hurt anything that people looked at you as extra holy. Now, again, I'm not trying to dismiss everything that the Desert Fathers had to say. One of my favorite statements is by Agatho, who was a desert monk of the second century. He said that if an angry man raises the dead, hang on just a second, Nathan, or William? Franklin. Franklin. Uh, same thing. Um, <laughs> Agatha said, if an angry man raises the dead, God is still displeased with his anger. That's very wise, okay? So I think that some of it was Platonism. Some of it was because I can look cooler than you, okay? I mean, come on. What goes on in the church now? You know the reason I can't have a big church with young people? Because I don't have cool hair, that's why, okay? I know what you're saying. Oh, stop it. Okay? So, So I think that was a lot of it. Okay, I think there was that philosophy, but also that tendency within the human heart to try and go above and beyond and be separate and be special. Okay, and I think that was some of it. Did I answer your question, Franklin? Okay, good. Any other questions? No? Going Must once? have answered all of them, Bruce. Yeah, either that or their eyes are so glazed over that <laughs> I've got nothing. I don't know what this guy's talking about. All right, well, this book is $20. Hey, if you'd asked the question, I wouldn't be holding up my book. <laughs> this book is $20. I made it as readable as possible so that the average person with no theological background at all can go in this book and read how to become spiritual mature, what it means, what it is, how do you attain it. It's back on the back. I don't have the big budget of, let's say, Dean Ministries. So... I'm going to put an envelope back in there, stuff a $20 bill in it, and take a book, okay? That's the way it works here. I trust you, all right? Any other questions? 
All right, let's close the word of prayer then. Father, I thank you that we've had this time to talk about what is right and what is wrong. I pray that we were kind in what we said, even though calling out error. It's never our goal to be uncharitable. Uh, We are to be kind to everyone, able to teach, slow to anger. If we've said anything that's uncharitable today, help it quickly to pass through our minds and to forget it. Forgive me for my sins, O God, in this area. But if what I've said is true, help us to remember it and to be aware of it. So when this comes before us, we will be forearmed and forprepared. Uh, give us a good break where we can relax and, and uh, refresh and be ready for our next speaker. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.